ordinary people empowered by the Spirit to witness to the Lord Jesus. This is the Acts of the Apostles. For more information, go to carolinesprings.church. morning, everybody. It is good to be with you here this morning. Great to be able to um, celebrate Father's Day for just a little bit before we go off and do our own thing. And um, good to be with you for week 10 in our journey through the book of Acts. Um, if you've been here, uh, I take it that you've been blessed by this journey that we're taking. We're, we're at week 10 of 25, so still a little ways to go. But I've been really encouraged by many of you over the last couple of weeks, just telling me how much you're enjoying um, working through this book. Uh, for many of you, this is the first time that you've done an in-depth look at the book of Acts, and uh, I think God is blessing our church very much as we, as we take our time in, in looking into what Luke wrote for us about the beginnings of the church. So, as you know, we're going to be looking at a, a short passage today in Acts chapter 9, and... Uh, and, and it, it, it relates to our meta-theme very well. The meta-theme that we discovered in the first week, 10 weeks ago, uh, is this. And I'm hoping that you've memorized it by now. We think um, that the book of Acts is really all about ordinary people empowered by the Spirit to witness to the Lord Jesus. All right, That's what it's all about. Ordinary people. So it's tempting to think, as we read some of these incredible things that happen in the book of Acts, that these must be some kind of super-Christians that are, that are doing these things. These apostles and, and, the, and the early uh, elders and deacons of the church just doing amazing things. They must be just super-people, and we could never be like that today. And we're going to see in the book of Acts, actually, as the apostles do some of the things that they do, some people who are not yet Christians are tempted to worship them because they must be some kind of god to achieve the things that they're achieving. But no, we've seen over and again that this is just about ordinary people who are empowered by the Spirit. And that's what makes the difference. And they're empowered by the Spirit, not primarily to, to do tricks, not primarily to do miracles, but empowered by the Spirit primarily to witness to the Lordship of Jesus. The Spirit who inspires the early Christians... His big idea, his big plan, his main job is to, to make everyone know, let everyone know that Jesus Christ is not dead and buried in the ground. He is risen and reigning at the right hand of God. And Luke's chronicle in the book of Acts is not just a historically accurate account of what happened, though it is. It also makes the theological point that Jesus is on the throne. And we're going to see that again this morning. The big idea in this passage is similar. This is about the spirit-empowered healing of ordinary people, which witnesses to the Lordship of Jesus. Again, he wants the emphasis to be on the Lordship of Jesus. He wants us to know that these, this healing happens through ordinary people, ordinary people like Peter, and that the big idea, the, 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 the focus of our minds should be on the Lordship of Jesus. We're going to see that you, you can't read what Luke writes without ending up worshipping Jesus, thanking Jesus for what he's done. And the response of the people who saw these healings in both cases was to turn to Jesus. And that's 
really why you're here this morning. You might be here, you thought you were here because, I don't know, it's Father's Day, maybe you do church on Father's Day. Maybe you're here because, I don't know, you couldn't, you couldn't sleep in this morning, so you might as well go to church. You might be here because this is one of the weeks of the year that you tick off, at, you know, one out of five. Um, you might think you're here for random purposes. The truth is that you're here so that you can hear about the risen and reigning Lord Jesus and turn to him in faith. That's why you're here. That's why God has you here. So, with that in mind, we're going to turn to the text. I encourage you to, uh, if you've got a Bible with you, to turn there with me, Acts chapter 9. If you don't own a Bible, take one of ours. Um, That's our Father's Day gift to you, irrespective of whether you have kids of your own. And we're just going to read a little bit and chat a little bit and make our way through this passage looking at two incredible miracles. Two miracles performed by Peter that had everybody talking. Right? You don't just heal a paraplegic who has been that way for eight years and raise somebody from the dead, resuscitate them to life again without word getting around a little bit. Luke mentions that everyone in the region hears about what Peter has done. He says that multitudes come to faith in Jesus because of what Peter has done. What Peter has done is incredible. It's miraculous. If this happened today, it would send Twitter into meltdown. I don't know if you remember Twitter when it first came out, but the fail whale, right? Anyone? Fail whale? No one? Twitter used to crash every few minutes, well, at least every few days, and they would just put up a picture of a whale that was called the fail whale, and it just let you know that Twitter wasn't working anymore. They've sort of overcome that now that they have billions of dollars um, to make sure everything works properly. But that's exactly what would have happened in this time in response to these two events. Meltdown, right? Everyone is talking about what has happened, but it's interesting, they're not talking about Peter, they're talking about Jesus. This is all about miraculous occurrences, miraculous happenings, but it's not about the man who is at the center of the occurrence. It's about the man who is seated at the right hand of God. Have we got that? That's the big idea. I could finish now, but I want us to just get a little bit further into the passage, all right? So let's take a look at verse 32 to 35. It says, as Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the saints in Lydda. So the church is established there in Lydda. There are saints there in Lydda. Don't think sort of Mary with a halo. That's just you guys. We're the saints, right? The saints, the Christians in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, a paralytic who had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and take care of your mat. It's literally get up and make your bed. Some of you are having flashbacks to being five years old, right? It's get up, make your bed. The point is, he can now. He hasn't been able to make his bed for eight years. Get up, make your bed. Immediately, Aeneas got up. 
And all those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. That's Luke's way of saying a lot of people became Christians after this happened. So a lot of us, I think, come from traditions where if this happened in our church, we would be prone to look at the man performing the miracle and not see the son of man who enabled the miracle. Let me give you some examples. We have many people in our church, by God's grace, who grew up as Roman Catholics. And in the Roman Catholic Church, there is this long tradition of venerating the saints. And when they say saints, they don't mean what Luke means, just normal Christians. They mean like super saints. You might have heard that uh, um, Mother Teresa is about to be made a saint, an official saint. And so in the Catholic Church, you are brought up, and I know some of you are nodding, right? You know, this is your experience. You are brought up to venerate these saints. These are the people that you pray to, not to Jesus. You pray to these saints who will then mediate your relationship with Jesus because Jesus is distant, but the saints are close. And so the church has this long history of doing this, and it's because we're prone to worship people rather than worshiping God. And it's a problem because it robs Jesus of the glory. It robs him of what is owed to him. It's not just Catholics. If you're here from a Pentecostal background, which I know many of you are, Pentecostal churches are prone to elevate leaders, right? If you are someone who has great gifts to stand up the front and speak in a loud voice and motivate people and lead people and go further and faster, then you are venerated, not in the way that Catholics venerate saints, but kind of in a similar way. It's just in a less liturgical form. Anglicans are no better off. We tend to take the priest, the vicar, who's, you know, at the top of the pyramid of the church and and everything goes through him. We have to make sure he's the one who prays for us. He's the one who blesses us. He's the one who does everything for us. And then our veneration of him doesn't last very long because when we make him do everything, we start to see that he can't do everything because he's not Jesus, right? So we end up demonizing what we have idolized. That's what happens all of the time. And what Luke wants us to be very clear about is that this is not about Peter. These healings, these resuscitations are not about him. He happened to be there. He happened to be a willing vessel for God's work, but it's God's work. And so you've got Peter, he's traveling around. He is an apostle sent to minister to this this brand new baby church. And he gets out to Lydda. If you read your Old Testament, that's the place called Lod, all right? Lydda, Lod, same place. And there's a church established there now. The saints are worshipping Jesus there now. And he gets to that region and comes across a man named Aeneas. And what's really interesting about Aeneas is that he is a paralytic. For eight years, he hasn't been able to move. And yet he is never in this passage in Acts chapter 9 referred to as a beggar. This is really interesting. I never noticed this until this week when I was reading through it. But back in Acts chapter 3, Peter heals another paraplegic 
but it's a crippled beggar. Now, what's changed? The society in which they live hasn't changed. You still need to work if you want to eat. If you can't move, you can't work, you don't eat. So you still need to beg, except if you're a Christian. Why? Because the Christian community has started to love one another in such a way that they provide for one another's needs. Remember, right back from the beginning, this is what they start doing from the beginning. They shared what they had so that nobody was in need. Someone who was a crippled beggar back in Acts 3 is now, if he's a Christian, taken care of. He's still a paraplegic, but they can meet his needs. So I think this is a really stark example of something that has changed as a result of the church being birthed and mobilized to not only share the good news of Jesus with others, but to provide for the needs of their fellow believers. So Peter is visiting the saints. One of the saints that he visits is this guy, Aeneas. He's been provided for in terms of his physical well-being, but he still can't walk until Peter comes by. And it's interesting, Peter doesn't pray for this guy. Peter just declares that he's been healed. So verse 34, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you, get up and take care of your mat. Immediately, Aeneas got up. Peter simply declares what Jesus has already done for him. And what Jesus has already done for him is heal an affliction that could not be healed by any other means. This is supernatural. This is miraculous. This is not psychosomatic. This is not some kind of faith healing beat up. This is simply Peter announcing to this guy who hasn't been able to move for eight years, you can move now, make your bed. Jesus Christ has healed you. Now, this passage has provided a problem. This passage and a couple of others has provided a great, great problem for the church in modern times. And the problem is this. You could take this passage, read a few words of it, and then say, and make this the big point of your sermon, guys, we just need to go out there and declare healing over people and they will be healed, right? Peter doesn't even pray for people. Let's stop praying for people. Let's just start declaring that they are healed. Name it, claim it, right? This is a modern phenomenon, unknown in the early church, unknown for centuries up until recently, where somebody got the idea that like Peter, we should quit praying for people and just tell them they're healed. Because the, the, the declarative power of a spirit-filled Christian will overcome all illness and disease and poverty. Now I wonder, is that the point of the passage? Have you ever noticed that, and maybe this is all new to you and it's just a bit weird, and it is weird, right? But have you ever noticed, if you've, if you've taken any notice of this kind of thing happening in churches, have you ever noticed that in every single case that someone says, this is how we should go about doing ministry, naming, claiming, have you ever noticed that the person who does it is the one who gets the glory? 
If you are someone who makes it your ministry to go around declaring healing over people and making paraplegics walk again and dead people rise from the dead, right? You are the one who becomes the center of people's worship. Worship. I could rattle off names. They're the ones who write books with their own photo on the front cover, right? Notice this. When Peter declares that the man has been healed, he does not say, Peter, formerly known as Simon, heals you, get up and make your bed. And when the people hear about what's happened, they don't turn to Peter. No, he says, Jesus Christ has healed you, and the people turn to Jesus. You need to be really clear about this. Peter is just the delivery guy. Peter is just the delivery guy. He is a conduit that God is using by the power of his spirit to achieve his kingdom purposes, but it's not about Peter. As Christians, the only thing we name and claim is the lordship of Jesus. So Peter is so full of the spirit. This is what's going on here. It's not name it and claim it. Damn it. It is Peter full of the Spirit, knowing what Jesus is up to in the world. He sees this man, he's full of the Spirit, he's in tune with God's purposes in the world, and he sees Jesus has healed this guy. And so he just lets him know. He's the delivery guy. And yes, there is some, there is some agency God gives Peter the privilege of being the delivery guy. There's some agency in his announcement, but it's not the effectual calling that makes a difference in this man's life. It's the work of Jesus in in his compassion, in his healing power. So remember that. Peter is just the delivery guy, and God wants to use you to be the delivery guy. And that would be a great privilege for any of us. My wife, Renee, loves shopping online. She hardly ever goes into a physical shopping center anymore. It's just all online. And the guys who deliver the stuff are like now, you know, I guess they're coming to our kids' birthday parties. Is that right? Every time one of them knows my name before I sign, I'm like, oh, this is, is this a good sign? But never once, although we have been friendly and hospitable and maybe giving them a cold drink on a hot day, never once have we received a package from them and said, oh, thank you so much. This is amazing. Thank you. Thank you for your thoughtfulness in bringing this gift to me. Why? Because they didn't make it. They didn't buy it. They're just delivering it. Peter is just the delivery guy. So when he announces the healing of this man in Jesus' name, the man doesn't fall down at his feet and worship him. The people in the whole region don't turn to Peter in faith. They know this is Jesus. He's the hero. And so our perspective, our focus should always be on Jesus. If this church has blessed you in some way, then by God, go to God and thank him. Save us, any of us, from the burden of being the object of your worship. 
So that's Aeneas. We move on to Tabitha now. Luke loves telling us miracle stories in both his gospel and in Acts in pairs, and he loves having a girl and a boy, all right? That's just a, a signature move of Luke. He loves telling us a story about a woman, a story about a man. We've had the man story. Now we're moving on to the, the woman story, and this is a story about Tabitha. And so he says in uh, verse 36, he says, In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which when translated is Dorcas. Right? That's the Aramaic version. I like the Greek better. Tabitha kind of sounds a little bit nicer than Dorcas. But if your name's Dorcas, we love you. And, um, and, and it's great to have you here this morning. Okay? Don't hate me. Who was always doing good and helping the poor. Now, Here's the thing. I reckon for a lot of us this morning, we've probably never heard of Tabitha before. We've probably never heard of this girl, Dorcas. She's not like a big hero of the Bible. There aren't books written about Tabitha. And I think one of the reasons there isn't is because we wrongly read about her and think, well, yeah, she's just a woman in the church who did good stuff for people. There isn't much remarkable about her, but if you were reading this in the first century, you would read that one verse, there was a woman named Tabitha who was always doing good and helping the poor, and you would have been blown away. There is a reason that a bunch of people mourn for her death in a few verses' time, and that is because this is a rare woman. Now, this is, this is going to blow the minds of many of us, but we need to understand that before the church got going, before Christianity was established in the world, people did not help the poor and do good to other people. They didn't. There was no such thing as charitable deeds towards strangers. There just wasn't. I, I love studying history and have done for about 20 years, and this is just something that is irrefutable. There were no charities before there was Christianity. Christians established the first hospitals, the first universities. Any institution you can think of pretty much that does good for others is a, has Christian beginnings. For the Greeks in this context... In, in Greek philosophy, the dominant philosophy of the time was Stoic philosophy, and that just told you that Stoic philosophy was all about you, you just accept your lot. You were born poor, just accept it. Your life will be better if you just accept it. If you're a paraplegic, just get over it, right? You're going to be begging for the rest of your life. On the upside, if you're rich, then take advantage of it. All of society is arranged in this aristocratic way that if you're beautiful, you'll do well. If you're ugly, you won't. If you're rich, if you're poor, right, you just accept your lot. And the Christians were the first ones to come along and say, no. No. We are all made in the image of God. And from the beginning, Christians worked for justice. And it was insane. This was a crazy cat lady, right? This, she, she would be known in the neighborhood as being that weird person who does good to other people. 
And even to this day, like this paved the way for democracy, right? If you look at it from a political point of view, this paved the way for democracy that never would have happened before because suddenly you have Christians saying, no, everyone has value. Everyone has worth. Everyone should have a say. It paved the way for an egalitarian way of viewing the universe that did not exist apart from Christianity. And to this day, areas of the world where democracy doesn't take root are areas of the world where Christianity has not had influence. You just look at it. Areas of the world where women are treated badly are areas of the world where Christianity has not had influence. Areas of the world where charities struggle to minister to the needs of people are areas where Christianity has not had influence. We're going to do a book plug, and it's a great book I would recommend highly. I'm not going to buy you this one, but it's not that expensive. It's a book, um, if you're interested in philosophy, this is a, a good place to start. It's called A Brief History of Thought. It's by Luc Ferry. He's a French philosopher. He's a secular philosopher, claims no Christian faith. But he basically, uh, he's a lecturer in philosophy And he was talking to some kids at his house one night. A couple of families were over for dinner. And these kids were asking him questions about what he teaches. And he thought, this, this is what I should do. I should write a book that can communicate deep philosophical truths to children or people who don't have a lot of uh, background in philosophy or education, right? So he wrote this book, and it would be well worth you picking it up. A Brief History of Thought. Now, in it, he gives a whole chapter to Christianity, the victory of Christianity, and in it, he outlines the point that I've just made. So let me just read a couple of lines to you. This is what he says. Finally, there are in Christian thought, above all in the realm of ethics, ideas which are of great significance even today and even for non-believers. So he's making the point that people today take for granted what Christianity gave us, without which we would have no idea about like, the idea that we're all made equal, that, we're all, that we all have rights, right? that we should all be treated with dignity and, 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 and honour. He says, these are ideas that wouldn't have existed without Christianity and they're important to people even if they hate Christianity. He says, after Christianity took root, humanity would never again be able to divide itself philosophically, according to a natural and aristocratic hierarchy of beings between superior and inferior, gifted, less gifted, masters and slaves. From then on, according to Christians, we are all brothers on the same level as creatures of God and endowed with the same capacity to choose whether to act well or badly, rich or poor, intelligent or simple. It no longer holds any importance And this idea equally leads to a primary ethical conception of humanity. The Greek concept of barbarian, synonymous with stranger, will slowly disappear to be replaced by the conviction that humanity is one. This is exactly what Paul wrestles with in most of his letters, particularly in Ephesians, right? The dividing wall of his hostility between Greek and and between Gentile and Jew has disappeared. The dividing wall between men and women, slave and free, has been destroyed. All of this, this whole philosophy that we all operate on every single day owes its existence to Christianity, and without Christianity, it wouldn't exist. And this 
woman, Tabitha, is one of the first to embrace it. What was she known for? She was known for doing good to others, helping the poor. And then something tragic happens. Verse 37, about that time, she became sick and died. And her body was washed, that is, prepared to be buried, and placed in an upstairs room. It's interesting that this is what's happened to her. It points to something deeper that's going on here. Normally, if someone died, they would be washed, that is, prepared for burial. Remember what happened to Jesus? They kind of soaked his body in spices and preservatives and wrapped him up, right? So this is what they've done with Tabitha, but they haven't put her in the ground. They've put her upstairs. And this is a theme throughout both the Old Testament and the New Testament, this happens when, they ha- when the people hold out some hope that, that there will be resuscitation. So the, the common belief in this day was that after someone dies, you get three days where the soul remains in the body and then it takes off. Right? So you've got three days window. And so they've washed her, they've put her upstairs and there's an implicit hope here that something's going to happen that's going to save this woman from the ground. Something's going to happen to give her life back to her. They've got three days and the clock is ticking. They so, so want her to be alive again. She is a cherished disciple in the early church. She's given her life to emulate Jesus in showing compassion to others. And so they're so hopeful for her. And maybe this is naive. Maybe they should have just stuck her in the ground. When someone's dead, they stay dead. But no, they've put her in an upper room and then they hear some news that gives them great hope. Verse 37, about that time she became sick and died and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa. So when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him Please come at once, right? The the clock is ticking. Three days is almost up. We've almost lost her for good. Come at once. So Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. And And the widows stood around him crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them, right? These 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 things that reminded them of her. Maybe you've got one of these things of a parent who has died or a loved one who has died, something precious that you hold on to that reminds you of them. That's what they've got. They've got these robes, these clothes that she has made for them, and they're mourning and crying because she's dead and they want her back. So Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. Does this sound familiar? Maybe you've heard this story before. Luke had heard something like this before. He wrote about it in his gospel. And so in Luke chapter 8, this is what happens. In verse 41, 
A man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house. Because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead. A very compassionate way of sharing the news, right? Your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore, right? There's no point. She's gone. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter. Except who? Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him knowing that she was dead, right? There's no, this, is, this is not up for debate. She's gone. But he took her by the hand and said, my little child, he, he calls her, it's really my, my little girl, because her name's Talitha. My little girl, get up. Her spirit returned and at once she stood up, then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Very similar story. We have Talitha, And we have Tabitha. We have Jesus in the room with Peter, James and John telling a little girl to get up. We have Peter, in this case, by himself in a room telling Tabitha to get up. Luke records both stories and he wants us to know there is direct link between the two. In both cases, Jesus is the hero. In both cases, the difference is Jesus. And so you say, what, is Peter just copying Jesus? Yes, that's exactly what's happening here. Peter was there in the first place, and now he's faced with a situation that looks a whole lot the same. He's like, this is crazy. I remember Talitha. This is Tabitha. Is this a coincidence? No. And so he just copies Jesus. That's exactly what he's doing. He tells her to get up, and she gets up. Friends, this is exactly what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It means you copy Jesus. Can you even imagine what would happen if the hundred disciples in this room right now were to go around copying Jesus like they're meant to? If for a minute we discovered the truth that being a disciple is not about being here on time on Sunday morning, and actually it's about copying our master, following in his footsteps, doing what he did, imagine what would happen. Peter's done it here. Tabitha was doing it before she died and presumably after she was raised. Why does Tabitha minister to the poor? Because Jesus ministered to the poor. Why does Peter tell her to get up when she's dead? Because Jesus did the same. Our mission here as a church is to be people helping people make all of life all about Jesus. And that only makes sense when we start seeing ourselves as a community of disciples. A community of disciples encourages one another. A community of disciples keeps one another accountable. A community of disciples asks one another hard questions about whether we are, in fact, copying Jesus in the way that we live, the way that we speak. 
that people helping people part is vital. So the question this morning is, how much of your life looks like Jesus' life? That would be a good question to ask each other over coffee after the service. And don't just ask the question and make the person feel bad. Follow up with, and how can I help that be more true in your experience? I'm going to finish with one last thought, and it's not the main point of the passage, and it could just be an extrapolation from a tired brain last night as I looked at this, but it leapt off the page as I was reading this again before I went to bed last night, and I feel like I just want to say it, and that is... We, as part of being a church that wants to um, help one another make all of life all about Jesus, we want to be used by God to share the good news of the gospel with people who don't yet know him, all right? That's called evangelism. It just means being, being good news sharers. It means being a mailman, a delivery man or woman. It means being able to deliver good news to people who desperately need it, which is everyone. And I saw in this passage, and particularly that second part with the healing of Tabitha, I saw a a correlation or a, a, a parallelism with this call that we have to share the good news with people. So I wrote it out. I've got it on a slide for you. And here's what I saw, the parallel. In Acts 9, Peter comes to a dead woman, prays for her to be raised, then declares what God has already done for her. Tabitha, get up. Right? God has resuscitated her from death, and he declares it to be true. In evangelism, in sharing the good news, we draw near to the spiritually dead person. Jimmy talked about this last week. Listen to the sermon online if you you weren't here. The spiritually dead person, we pray for them to be raised and declare what God has already done for them. Friend, get up. Do you see the parallel there? In evangelism, we are raising the dead. It's not by our power, it's God's power working through us. We are just cracked vessels that hold great treasure. We are just the conduits of God's grace. But that's what's happening, and that's how you need to view the people you share the gospel with. They are not just people drowning in need of a life vest. They are people who are dead and buried. And as we draw near to them, we pray for them to be raised. We, we trust that this is what God wants for them. We depend on him to have the power to raise them and then we declare to them the good news of what God has already done. Friend, Jesus died for you. He was raised again for you. You can have access to God on the basis of his death, burial and resurrection. God wants to adopt you as his own child. He is a good and perfect father. Every day is Father's Day for the Christian. God wants you. He's pursuing you. He loves you. We declare what God has already done for them and then say, friend, get up. Follow Jesus. Now that's something that if I were you, I would want to be a part of. Raising the dead is a great privilege. And we want to, as a church, enable one another 
to be those who, by the power of the Spirit, raise people from spiritual death. Well, that's a neat little passage there that Luke gives us, two stories of God's power at work through ordinary people, for ordinary people, to testify and witness to the goodness of Jesus. I'm going to pray for us now as we transition now to a time of praise. So why don't you bow your heads and we'll pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Acts. It's this amazing historical account of what you did in the early church. And we believe that you continue to be living and active and that you continue to want to use ordinary people to bring about your kingdom purposes. So please, Lord, excite us. Too many of us are bored Christians. Too many of us are kind of useless right now. We've stopped imitating the Lord Jesus. Our lives don't look very much like Tabitha's or Peter's or really any of the early disciples. We've reduced Christianity down to this Sunday attendance. We've started venerating our leaders rather than the Lord Jesus. Oh God, please save us from such a terrible, boring fate. Please move in this place, move in Caroline Springs, in all of the churches in Caroline Springs who witness to the Lordship of Jesus. Fill us with your spirit. Empower us to do wonderful things in your name. Empower us to see people healed, to see people saved. Make this church a church of people helping people make all of life all about Jesus. And Lord, as we do that, please, Oh, please, continually humble us. Enable us to deflect all of the glory to you so that people would turn to Jesus and not to us. We love you. We thank you for all that you've done and all that you're going to do as we live as disciples of Jesus. We pray in his good name. Amen.